Welcome to the podcast of Okotoks Calvary Fellowship. Please enjoy as Pastor John opens up the word. Okay, well, if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1, and we'll be going through verses 4 through 7 this morning. And one of the most amazing and certainly unique stories in all of Scripture lies before us. So let's begin at verse 4. It says, But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. Then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said said to him, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. And they said one to another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know for for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Now I find it really, really interesting that some people will go to any length to get out of some duty. They have certain tasks or responsibilities that they find undesirable, even prophets. And we see here that Jonah ran from God. He ran from his calling from God. So he got on a boat. He thought he was going to Tarshish. He was planning to flee from the presence of the Lord. And I'll bet that when that storm came up, he still must have thought, this sure beats going to Nineveh, doesn't it? Jonah must have thought, great, I'm going to Tarshish. That's in the southern part of Spain. He's thinking about beach. He's thinking about sunshine, a nice relaxing Mediterranean cruise. But it turns out to be an episode of Gilligan's Island very quickly. And he doesn't make it to where he wanted to go. And Jonah is about to discover something here, and that is that God can stretch his arm out wherever you may be and wherever you may be now, and bring you to where he wants you to be. Or at least very strongly convince you of where you ought to be. In Isaiah 59, verse 1, it says, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. And the captain and the crew of this boat did not know who Jonah was when he boarded. They didn't know that he was a prophet. They didn't know that he was a runaway prophet. He was just a guy aboard the ship. But he was a fugitive minister, and his actions had great consequences. So this morning, I want to look at three things, and I always find it easier in a message when there's like three points, and you can follow along and know where we're going. So this morning, we're going to look at the providence that brought this storm. And God sent it to the people who weathered the storm, 
And then we'll talk about the prophet that caused the storm. And we're going to see um, in this that God will go to great lengths to get a hold of renegade children of his and great length to save people who are not his. So first of all, let's look at the providence that brought this storm. Look in verse 4 with me. It says, But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. Now the word that's being used here literally means God hurled a storm. This is a supernatural storm. It's something that God sent to get a hold of this prophet. And I've often thought about what it would be like to be a prophet. A prophet. I really don't think that this would have necessarily been the most desirable job in the Old Testament. I don't picture a lot of guys lining up with their applications to go to prophet school. And here's the reason why I think that. If you were a prophet back then, what you spoke had to be 100% accurate. And if it didn't, if it wasn't 100% accurate, what happened? You would get stoned to death. So you wanted to ensure that, first of all, you were called to this position. And moreover, you wanted to make sure that you were obedient to speak accurately. But what's worse than being a prophet would be being a disobedient prophet. A prophet that runs away from God's calling. And Jonah is about to find out you don't mess with God. God can take you on no matter of who you are and no matter where you go. And there are certain people in the, that I found, certain individuals in the body of Christ, they're always open to the Lord. Their antennas are always up. They're on the lookout for the will of God. So if God gently speaks, it's like they pick up on it, they're gone. They just go with it. And a great example of this from the Old Testament was Samuel. All God had to say was, Samuel, Samuel. And eventually, once Samuel knew what was going on, he said, speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. He was attentive and ready to serve at a moment's notice. Now, other people are more hard-headed. And God has to use more extreme measures to get their attention. And to get them to go where he wants them to go. And a great example of this would be Jacob. Jacob wrestled with God all night long until the breaking of dawn. And it wasn't until God gave him a limp (laughs) that he finally said, okay, I'm ready to go. And sadly, there are many in that second position like Jacob, always wrestling with God and always walking around with a limp. So which one are you this morning? Are you a speak, Lord, I'm listening? Or God, I'm going down swinging. 
I'm ready to fight you on this one. Look, God can take on anywhere, anyone and prevail at the same time. Proverbs 15.10 says, Harsh discipline or harsh correction is for him who forsakes the way. And Jonah is going to experience that. Now I want you to notice something here. Look at how verse 3 begins. Verse 3 begins, But Jonah arose to flee. And then look at how verse 4 begins. But the Lord sent out a great wind. I think you get the drift. You see what's happening here. God won't force you. God will respect your will. But I will add that He can strongly persuade you. He has a way to get you to say, okay, I get the point. I'm not going to keep fighting you on this. And we have a great example of this in the book of Exodus, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. It says, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. And of course, you remember what happened. The Lord began the fine art of persuasion. <laughs> A few flies, lice, frogs, blood, etc. Plague after plague until Pharaoh finally obeys the voice of God. And of course, God prevailed sovereignly. Now, Jonah gets away with a lot here. I mean, think about it. He makes his way from his house in Gath Heifer. And he goes to Joppa. That's some like 60 miles south. He buys a ticket in Joppa to go to Tarshish, which is on the other side of the Mediterranean. He gets on the boat and he even takes off. God does not stop him along the way. He doesn't rearrange the stars to say, Stop, Jonah! He doesn't hook up speakers on the moon that come blasting down and goes, Hey, prophet boy, this is God. <laughs> no, God let him go. But eventually God starts intervening and this is the lesson in all of this. If you're the kind of person open to listen to that still small voice of God, great. But if you're not, you better get storm insurance. Because God will speak a little louder, a little more forcefully next time, and it could be in the midst of a storm like this. Francis Thompson referred to the Holy Spirit as the hound of heaven. God won't let go because He loves you. He is so persistent. He knows that you'll never be si uh, uh, um, satisfied until you're abandoned to Him as well. Augustine once said, Lord, we are restless 
until we find our rest in Thee. Every time we as believers see other believers who are being disobedient to God, they're handling situations wrongly or they're entrenched in some kind of sin, we get worried about them. We don't want them to backslide too much. So we try to persuade them to come back. And when people come to me and ask me about situations, what should I do in this? I'll always point them to a Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. It says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. But after you've done that, and they still won't listen, then you have to take a step back and let God at them. Don't worry. God can take them on. God knows right where they're at. God has all sorts of creative ways to get that person's attention and bring them back. The big question for us is, how long will it take? <laughs> we always seem to want it instantly. And to what extent will God have to go to actually get their attention? Well, let's move to this second section. And this is the people that actually weathered the storm. In verse 5, we're introduced to the mariners and then to the captain later on. Now, we think that this was a cargo ship. And that is, you know, that they would transfer um, goods from one port to another. But it was the kind of cargo ship that would also accept passengers. And this was where the problem sets in. The issue at hand here was between two parties. God and Jonah. It did not involve anybody else until Jonah got on their boat. And it shouldn't have involved anybody else. The problem was that Jonah decides to attach himself to this group of people. And so now the problems that Jonah faces, i.e. the big storm, they also face it. And there's an important point to be made here. The disobedience of one can affect others in fact it always does you can never sin alone it will always affect other people and a runaway christian is a menace and that runaway christian's disobedience can affect innocent bystanders you know when i think of this my mind's drawn to joshua chapter 7 if you remember the israelites plundered that great city of jericho but god tells them clearly not to take anything out of the city for themselves but there's this guy his name's Achan, and he disobeys this direct command from god he steals a babylonian garment some gold and silver and he buried it in his tent 
and the whole camp of Israel is judged because of one man's disobedience. What he thought to be a secret sin affected an entire nation. So one person's sin can affect many other people, yet there is some good that comes in all of this. What could be a very bleak, dismal story God can use and the shenanigans of this runaway prophet, God turns it all around for his glory. Now I want to draw your attention to three uses of a phrase in this story. Three times we see that these sailors are scared or afraid or fear something. And each time, it's a stage of development to where they come to know the Lord. They make a commitment to the Lord God through this storm. So God turns this around for His glory and saves a shipload of pagan sailors. So the first um, use of this phrase, fear, was the fear of circumstances. Verse 5, look what it says. Then the mariners were afraid. And every man cried out to his God and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. You guys got to understand something. These guys were experienced sailors. They had seen storms before. But clearly this was a different storm. This was something supernatural and they knew it. And they were afraid because of the circumstances of the storm around them. And so often a person's first movement toward God is like this, right? They're afraid of the storm that they're in. It's gotten their attention. Their life's rocking a little bit. They're reeling. And they've come to the end of themselves. And in coming to the end of themselves, they quickly learn to cry out to God as these sailors did. Now, they didn't cry out to the right God yet, but they will. But it says, every man cried out to his own God. Just think about what an eclectic worship service that would have been. It's kind of like a to whom it may concern kind of a prayer. They're all kind of firing there. So they prayed, but notice that it also says that they threw their cargo into the sea. Okay, now this is really interesting. If this is a cargo ship and they get money from bringing their cargo from port to port, what are they doing getting rid of the only thing that could bring them a profit? I'll tell you what they're doing. They're surviving. That's what storms do. Storms will change your value system. Storms will turn you from salesman to survivor. 
Suddenly you're in this storm. You don't care about how much money you make. You don't care about what position you have. You don't care about what car you drive. Of course, they weren't driving cars back then. What ship you, you, you sailed in. You care about living. Making it through to the other end. So they throw the cargo over the ship because they're afraid of the circumstances around them. And that's the first stage of their fear. Well, the second stage was the fear of consequences. Verses 8 and 9. Then they said to him, Please tell us, for whose cause is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? So he said to them, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord of the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Now let's be clear for a second. What Jonah is saying here right now is lip service. It's just God talk. Jonah was not fearing God at that moment, was he? If he was, he wouldn't have been on that boat to begin with. He's running away from God. However, one thing that he did say there was accurate. He said, the Lord is the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Look at verse 10. It says, Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, Why have you done this? For the men knew that he had fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So we see this second stage of fear is not a circumstantial fear. It's a consequential fear. Jonah had ticked off God you know, and they're saying, like, Jonah, you ticked off God, and now you're on our boat. And because he's angry with you, we're all going to face the same consequences. And I want you to put this into a bit of context quickly. Jonah was monotheistic. He believed one God overall. These sailors were polytheistic. They believed in many gods. In fact, it would be probably more accurate to call them henotheistic. And that belief system basically believed that there were localized gods in different areas. You have a god of the hills, you have a god of the ocean, you have the god of the rivers. And these gods are confined to their specific precinct. One has power here, one has power there. So when they're crying out, it's to any god that they could, whoever would answer them. If you remember in the book of 1 Kings, the Syrians said this after they were defeated by Israel. He says, their gods are the gods of the hills, therefore they're stronger than we. But if we fight against them in the plains, we'll be stronger than they will be. So imagine these sailors. They've been all over the Mediterranean. They've traveled from port to port, hearing tales about different gods and myths. But they knew something. 
They knew that the God of Israel was a cut above the rest. They had heard about the Red Sea. They had heard about the Jordan River. They had heard about Jericho and the walls falling. And now, when they hear that a prophet of Israel who upset God is on their boat, they're exceedingly afraid about the consequences of this. It's a whole different kind of fear now. And sometimes in the storms of our life, when the waters get stirred up, first of all, we fear the circumstances in our lives. And we start examining our own lifestyle. What the consequences of that lifestyle will be. What will happen at the end of it all. How will God judge me if I were to die right now? And quite often, it's more a fear of the consequences that drive us to God. But now we progress to the third and the best stage of their fear. Look at verse 11. Fear, the fear of God or the reverence of God. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to return to land, but they could not, for the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. Therefore they cried out to the Lord and said, We pray, O Lord. Now I want you to notice that this is now the Old Testament word now being used for Lord. We pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life and do not charge us with innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. <coughs> Now this is completely different, right? They're not afraid of their circumstances. There is no storm anymore. Therefore, there are no circumstances. They're not afraid of the consequences that came upon Jonah. He's overboard now. Now it's perfectly calm and they fear the Lord and they make vows and they offer sacrifices. They have seen the immediate power of God and how quickly He responded to this once, you know, once that renegade Jonah was overboard. And it produced what we call the fear of the Lord. Now that's not a, I'm scared because God's mad at me kind of fear. It's a reverential respect. And that's really the idea behind the fear of the Lord. That's why the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The only real fear that I have is that I love Him so much I don't want to displease Him. It's a reverential respect in submission to a loving God. Now this is very similar to the disciples in the New Testament in Mark chapter 4. 
You remember that storm on the Sea of Galilee? Jesus calms it. You know, He comes in, stands up there and goes, peace, be still, and everything's calm. Well, listen to what the disciples said in Mark 4, verse 41, right after this event. And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? Well, that's exactly what these sailors are doing amongst themselves right now. And what did they do? They made a sacrifice and they made vows to God. Now, that is extremely significant. Do you know why? Because the storm was over. There was no more imminent danger. It shows us that their reverence for God was sincere. How many times have we heard people making vows in the midst of a storm? God, if you get me out of this, I will go to church every Sunday for the rest of my life. I'll give my life to you. But as soon as the storm is over, they forget all their empty promises. But these sailors showed the reality of their faith after the storm had passed. And God turned this whole thing around and used it for His glory to save these sailors. So we've seen the providence that brought the storm, the people who weathered the storm. Now let's look at the prophet who caused the storm, and that's Jonah. In our remaining time, I just want to draw a contrast between these sailors and Jonah. Because we've just seen a few major points of contrast between the two. In verse 5, it says, The sailors were praying. What was Jonah doing? Jonah was sleeping. Now, I'm sure there was a good reason for this. I mean, he'd walked 60 miles from Gath Heifer down to Joppa. But you know what? I think that there's another reason he slept so soundly during this storm. There is nothing more exhausting than disobeying God. It will physically, emotionally, spiritually drain you far more than a long, good walk. Paul the Apostle said, I can do all things through Christ who gives me the strength. And yet, when you go away from Christ, you lose all that strength. And I truly believe that Jonah is exhausted from that. There's something else I find interesting here in verse 5. It said that every man cried out to his own God. Pagan sailors had sense enough to pray in a storm. But Jonah, who knows the one true God, is fast asleep. That's just amazing to me. You know, it reminds me of a song by one of my favorite artists of all time, Keith Green. 
And he said in one of his lyrics, listen close, he says, the world is sleeping in the, jo- the dark, but the church just can't fight because it's asleep in the light. How can you be so dead when you've been so well fed? Jesus rose from the grave and you can't even get out of your bed. Now there's insight into Jonah's condition. Verse 1, he neglects the word of God, what God said to him. And in verse 5, he neglects prayer to God. These are the basic essentials that give us strength. And when you, you neglect the word, when you neglect prayer, you're in the same horrid state that Jonah was in. So that's the first contrast. They're praying, he's sleeping. Verse 7, we see that the sailors rebuke his disobedience while Jonah maintains his disobedience. They rebuke his disobedience, but he maintains his disobedience. Verse 7 says, And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. This is great. God is sovereignly in control even in their superstitious practices. And there are many people who have trouble with this. They're casting lots. I mean, they're throwing dice. But understand that God can even control that. Proverbs 16, verse 33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. I love how Donald Gray Barnhouse translates this. Man throws the dice, but it's God who makes the spots come up. And as we read, the spots came up for Jonah. So it's your fault, Jonah, (laughs) which led to a flurry of very pointed questions, six of them in all. Jonah, please tell us Whose cause is this trouble upon us? What's your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country and what people are you? And then a few verses later, and why have you done this? And those questions really tell us something. Jonah hadn't given them any information about himself. He had said nothing about his God. He hadn't witnessed to them. He hadn't given his testimony. He didn't say, I'm from Israel. He didn't say, I'm a prophet. No, he just gets on the boat and he goes to sleep. And there's a very good explanation for this. It's because he was disobedient. And a disobedient believer has no testimony. He had no testimony to share. He had forsaken the calling of God upon his life. There is no confidence. 
what's he going to say to them? Hey, guys, here's a tract. <laughs> Did you know that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? And they're going to go like, really? Jonah, if God has such a wonderful plan for your life, why are you running from it? And in verse 10, we see that sixth question. Why have you done this? The men knew that he had had fled from the presence of the Lord because he had just told them. And now this is a rebuke in the form of a question. You mean you're a prophet of God? The kind of God that can cause this kind of storm? And you didn't do what he said to do? Jonah, that's dumb. Friends, anytime the unbelieving world rebukes the church, we're in trouble. When God allows a believer's sin to be exposed for the world to see, it hurts us. Another pastor or Christian leader or televangelist has fallen. It puts such a black mark on the work of God in the earth and we are again rebuked by an unbelieving world. Nathan the prophet said to David after he had sinned with Bathsheba, David, by doing this, you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt. You've given believers another excuse to say, see, there's just so many hypocrites in the church. And every time there is this hypocrisy and disobedience, there is more ammunition. Thirdly and finally, the sailors softened their hearts. Jonah hardened his. We've already covered how the sailors' hearts were softened towards the Lord. But Jonah, on the other hand, went from card-carrying prophet to hard-headed prophet. They go from pagan to somebody who fears the Lord. So the sailors ask this prophet of God, what do we do now? And it's amazing to me that Jonah becomes even more obstinate when he's confronted. You would think when all the arrows and fingers are pointing at him, the jig's up. This is all about me. It's my fault. I've caused this disaster to come upon us. I need to fall on my knees and repent. Guys, turn this boat around. I need to go back to Joppa. I need to obey. But look what he does, verse 12. Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you, for I know that this great tempest is because of me. Do you not see the irony and contradiction in all of this? He's willing to sacrifice his life for the physical safety of these pagan sailors. But he's not willing to go to Nineveh 
to see the spiritual salvation of the Ninevites. This is very revealing. I would rather die than obey. This is how hard his heart has become towards God and his call for him. And we might ask the question upon hearing this response, can a person who says he knows God become so hardened? So recalcitrant against God that he ends up in such a destructive manner? And the answer is yes. You guys know how I love Charles Spurgeon. He put it this way. Nothing good can come out of a stony heart. It is barren as a rock. To be unfeeling is to be unfruitful. Prayer without desire. Praise without emotion. Preaching without earnestness. What are all these? Like the marble images of life. They are cold and dead. Insensibility is a deadly sign. Frequently, it is the next stage to destruction. Well, we look at we know God isn't done with Jonah yet. And we're going to see next week that Jonah runs from God, but God's arm is still out there for him. But here's the greatest irony of this story. The greatest irony. Remember why Jonah ran from God? Because he didn't want to see those pagans, those Ninevites, those enemies of the Jews saved, like we saw last week. Yet the irony is a whole boatload of them get saved, even in the midst of Jonah's disobedience. There are two mega lessons here for us to take home today. First of all, God wants to use your life as his instrument even when we're creeps, even when we are disobedient, even when we are stubborn, even when we don't want to be used. And God has a specific call for you to fulfill. Second of all, God wants everybody to be saved. And if God needs to send a storm to get your attention, He will. He loves you that much. Are you running to him this morning or are you running away from him? Let's pray. Father, this is a really challenging passage to see how often our hearts become hardened towards you and the call that you have towards us. Lord, we just don't want to do it. Maybe we're afraid. Maybe we don't like the people you're calling us to minister to. Lord, whatever the reason is, Lord, we need to be obedient to you. We need to have those clear lines of communication with you so that there's nothing that's impeding us from being able to share with those that you place in our lives. And Lord, if every one of us was to take that responsibility seriously, to be obedient to you, to follow you, to press into you, to pray, to spend time in your word, to have that open and vibrant 
fruitful relationship with you, what you could do in our lives. Lord, it all begins with our heart. And Lord, in areas that we've become hard, I just pray that you will pour that oil of joy on our lives. Soften our hearts. As David said, restore unto us the joy of our salvation. Renew that right spirit within us, Lord. Lord, there's a world out there that is just crying for us to be that salt and light that they desperately need. Help us to be that, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.